For many people today, healthcare feels like we're behind enemy lines. The system is geared to take care of us, but why do we feel like we're in it alone? Everyday stories are a powerful way to shine light on the gaps that make it feel this way. I'd like to welcome you to Everyone Hates Healthcare, where we bring you real people's healthcare stories, unfiltered. And now your host, Michael Swartz. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited about this next guest. Uh, When we created Everyone Hates Healthcare, I always hoped that fellow listeners would introduce people who have stories that need to be told. And this next guest is one of those. I had a very close friend of mine who a few weeks ago was flipping through TikTok, flipping through Instagram, and stumbles across a creator and influencer named Heidi May Harrington. And the video she stumbled across was this video of her talking about her diagnosis of CPTSD and how she's starting a series to talk about her journey, what she really did to improve her own mental health, really with the whole idea of trying to destigmatize mental health. So I couldn't be more excited to have Heidi on this show. And welcome to the show, Heidi. Hi, thank you for having me. So you're a content creator and influencer. Uh, tell us a little bit about, it's, I guess it's an industry that a lot of uh, millennials, Gen Zs are hoping to become, but what led you to start creating content? Like, what's your origin story? Yeah, so um, I have a, a pretty fucked up origin story, um, which we will get into. But a big part of why I started creating was just because of my where my life was at. And it was really my only avenue for self-expression and socializing because I was homeschooled my whole life. And then I started working to help support my family and my siblings at 13. Um, and so that kind of negated hanging out with peers. And so I started on social media when MySpace was a thing. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, I was in um, the whole like scene trend. I had a, like a scene name. Uh, and because influencing and content creation was not anything yet, uh, I was relentlessly bullied by my family and the like handful of uh, friends that I had. And so I actually quit um, creating on MySpace because I was just, you know, being called vain and just nobody understood it because it wasn't established yet. Um, And so I stopped creating and kind of like I didn't tell any of my followers that I was like moving to Facebook. I just kind of moved over there and then uh, flash forward like eight years and I ended my engagement to this guy and I'm like, well, now what I want to do. And so I thought, well, if I could accidentally uh, get a big following on my face, I bet I could do it again on purpose. And that's when um, influencing and content creation was like just starting to come into the news on Instagram. And so I set out to 
do on purpose what I had done is on accident as a teenager. And uh, that's how I got into it. Wow. So let me ask you this. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's your favorite social media platform that you're using right now? Oh, man. So I'd have to say, um, I'd have to say TikTok. And the big reason is just because it's so different. Um, and of course, like at this point, Instagram has copied TikTok. So it's really kind of the same short form video uh, idea on both of them. And I didn't start my TikTok until the pandemic happened, which forced a, uh, uh, a layoff onto me and a career change. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I'm a content creator, you know, and an influencer, but I do also work a full-time job as well. Um, so I went from touring to uh, just being at home and I was like, well, good a time as any to start a TikTok. So I knew I needed to, because it was the next social media site. And so at first I did not get it uh, at all. <laughs> it was such a, a different take on content. Um, and then it quickly became my favorite one. And so I now between Instagram and TikTok, I try and split my time and create for both of my, uh, platforms. Yeah. TikTok, uh, is something that I just started using, looking at, and it's definitely a lot there. So, uh, that, that's, oh, yeah. that's awesome that, you know, you started on MySpace. I remember top eight yeah. and how many fights were started on who's on your top eight <laughs> good times good times oh so, yeah so what uh you t- tell us a little bit about where you think so you got diagnosed with cptsd but you mm-hmm. know where where'd you start where in your life did you start experiencing trauma. What was the trauma? What was that time that, uh, you know, was the first kind of nudge towards it? Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) my trauma started, the first memory I have of it, I was, I think three. Uh, so very young. Um, my, parents were in a cult when I was born. Um, and this cult was, uh, it would be similar to the belief system that the Duggars have. Um, so, you know, women can't cut their hair. They can't do anything without a man's, um, approval. You know, they shouldn't speak up. Uh, guy has to take, you know, make all of the decisions in the house. Um, and then couple that with this, the satanic panic that was happening because I was born in 88. And so it was, this cult was a mixture of, um, very sexist, misogynistic, uh, attitudes towards women and then, uh, advocating for, um, physical and verbal and emotional abuse of kids. Um, because, you know, a demon was around every corner and an evil spirit could get into them. And so if they had an evil spirit, you had to spank them until you broke their spirit was what the term they use, which is it just, you know, Christians speak for beat them into submission. Uh, <laughs> so my first memory of trauma um, is being three and being held down because 
they believed I had a Jezebel spirit, which was like sexual, like a sexual demon. Um, and you know, I'm three and I'm being spanked with some kind of like, I think it was a, might've been like a tree branch or something. Um, these weren't like, when I use this term spanking, it was not like a hand. It was like a wooden implement. Um, and so that's my first, yeah, that was my first traumatic memory. Um, and it just, it, it, it went on for a long time. Um, my dad left the coal after a few years, my parents did, um, because he realized like, oh, this is like kind of fucked up. Um, but even though they weren't in the cult anymore, the cult beliefs were still in my family. Um, and so it was still like everything was punishable by spanking. And um, if you took a piece of candy or food that wasn't explicitly given to you by my parents, then it was stealing. Um, and so, you know, I had a lot of, uh, I have a lot of blackouts from my childhood that I was aware of as a child. Um, and it would be, you know, it wasn't until two years ago that I realized it was uh, dissociative amnesia and dissociative blackouts. Um, so I would literally like uh, from starting from when I was three to up until I was like 13, uh, I would just kind of come to um, and like doing something like uh, similar to if you're drinking, you know, you like come to in the middle of an action or a, a sentence. Um and that was happening to me for 10 years. And so I just, I genuinely would lose time and I wouldn't know where I had been or what I had been doing. Um, and I also, because of the cult and the cult was very like anti-medicine, there's no such thing as like medical conditions. It's all like demons. And if you pray hard enough, you know, you'll get better. And if you don't, well, you didn't pray hard enough. Um, and so I didn't, and I was homeschooled as well. So I had no um, I had no vocabulary to express what I was going through to my parents. I just genuinely did not have the words as well as like the cult had firmly established my parents as people I was terrified of um, because I could be, you know, spanked uh, for anything and, you know, starting at three years old. And I mean, I remember one time, like I was excited because I made it the whole day without getting spanked. And then during like the nightly prayers, I think I was like seven or eight at the time, uh, while my whole family was praying, I scooted across the floor because I wanted to sit next to my mom. And then when everyone, the prayer was over and they opened their eyes, I got spanked for it because I was like disrespecting God. So it, yeah, so it it could be anything um, that I never knew exactly like there were obvious like rules like don't take a piece of candy and you know like don't lie but there's also random things like oh you have a look of a spirit of rebellion so now you're getting a spanking and so it was just absolutely terrifying um and also like just as a cutaway um I'm very close with my parents now and um my mom's in therapy my dad's in therapy so you know everything that I mentioned like they are fully like yeah we're so sorry like I can't believe we did that um so, so when, like, please, no one who's, when, <laughs> nobody who's listening, like, go hate on my parents. <laughs> so when, again, I am, if you saw my jaw right now, it's on the floor. <laughs> um, but what, when did your parents uh, start to uh, realize that this is probably not right what we're doing? 
So, you know, it happened incrementally. Um, you know, they left the sexist uh, cult, but they still had the like spanking um, and uh, demons and all that kind of like physical and verbal abuse. Um, then they went and like attended another cult for like six months, which is always kind of like funny to me. There's a, po- a cult podcast I listen to and they're like, we're going to talk about the Branhamites. And I sent it to my mom. I was like, oh my God, it's one of the many. <laughs> Like, uh, because my parents took me there, like all of us there for like six months. Um, but I would say they, my, so I have two younger siblings. I have, uh, I have three younger siblings and two older. And by the time, uh, my brother Gabe was born, he's six years younger than me. Um, my parents, by the time he was like two, my parents had stopped, uh, the majority of stuff. And my little sister, Miranda, she's eight years younger and she never experienced any of the, uh, physical and verbal abuse, um, that I did. So I would say the last time that I really remember it happening would be when I was like, I think at the very last time was 13, but it wasn't all the time up until I was 13. And it was actually like, uh, so one of, one of the, series of events that I strongly believe like really influenced my CPTSD um, because I had dissociative blackouts and I would lose time when like my Nana was visiting. And like, I remember this so vividly, even though I was quite young. Um, so my Nana was visiting and jelly beans went missing. Um, and, and don't ask me how they knew like some jelly beans were missing. I don't know. But my dad had this habit of lining up all of us children in the kitchen and nobody could leave the lineup until somebody confessed, which was just the worst. Um, and so we're all lined up and my parents are like, well, you can't watch the Lone Ranger uh, movie. We were going to watch tonight until somebody confesses. And so me and my like eight year old, you know, brilliance is like, well, I really want to see the Lone Ranger. And I can't really say what I did today because I lost, you know, 45 minutes. So it's possible that I could have taken those jelly beans and not remembered. And so, you know, those two things, I'm like, okay, I'll say I did it because I could have, and I want to watch this movie. Uh, So I said, I did it. Um, I got, you know, the spanking for it. And uh, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, my older sister who actually took the jelly beans was like, wow, why didn't I ever think of this before? And that kicked off like three to five years of my two older sisters just doing whatever they wanted and taking whatever they wanted and me taking the fall for it. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, this is like these series of years were like the most, traumatic for me because I didn't do anything. I wasn't doing it. I figured out I wasn't doing it, you know? Um, but my parents were like very confused because they didn't know what was going on. I was confessing to it. Um, and so they, you know, tried spanking more. They tried emotional abuse. And so like mixed with religious abuse. So like, you know, how could you like, God loves you. Like, you know, what happened to you, just like pile on all of the emotional abuse 
on top of the physical abuse of the spankings. Um, and also like when we were getting spanked, uh, you couldn't cry too much and you also couldn't cry at all. Like you couldn't not cry. Um, because if you cried too much, you were faking it and they'd spank you more. And if you didn't cry at all, then you were rebellious and you'd get spanked more. And so there is this, yeah. So there is this psychological torture of like in the midst of being physically abused, I had to gauge my reaction to mitigate what I was going through. And if I got it wrong, I would get more. And so From there was this like psychological Yeah. Yeah. And so the psychological component and the emotional component and then the physical component, like all of it was terrible. <laughs> and so I really like that is where the CPTSD uh really, you know, it's kind of like just take your pick of what caused it because it was all bad. So I I have to say, um, and I think uh your your note uh should be stressed even more. Uh you said you had a great relationship or a good relationship with with your family now. And yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That really is. Uh it's really amazing. Um uh one of the uh really fun and I'm being absolutely sarcastic uh things about CPTSD is a lot of people don't know that they have the condition. Um, because people with, uh, PTSD, there is a before the trauma. So when the PTSD starts, they can be like, wow, I used to be happy. I used to not react this way. So they have a comparison internally, but CPTSD, because it so often starts in early childhood, there is no before. And so I was completely unaware that I had had a traumatic childhood and that I was suffering from CPTSD. I had no idea. Because I had no, like, oh, other people don't become terrified when the room is silent for too long. I just thought, like, everybody was like that, you know. Or if there's a disagreement, other people don't find that they've locked themselves in the bathroom and then be like, wow, how did I get in here? I just, it was so normalized to me because I had never known anything else. Um, And so it took... Uh, meeting my current partner. Uh, we had dated as teenagers and it didn't work out. And then we reconnected five years ago. And uh, he realized within two text messages, like, oh my God, everything that I thought was a character flaw before is she is undiagnosed. Like there is, there is stuff going on here. And so he, um, he amazingly was very supportive and accepting And over a period of months, he very like gently guided me towards realizing that I needed help um, because I was just completely oblivious. Like I was suffering from an eating disorder. I was suicidal. I was dissociating for like days or weeks at a time. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm fine (laughs) because I had never known anything other than just suffering mentally. Um, And so he, you know, after a few months, I, he sent me a podcast where this lady, um, in the podcast said, you know, I didn't know that if you aren't depressed, you don't have, I'll kill myself is like option B. I just thought everybody had that. Like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. I could make it right. I could hide or I could kill myself. Like, but she realized that people without mental illness, they don't have that third option. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I might need to be diagnosed. Um, and so I, my partner took me to the mental health place and like waited for me while I got evaluated. Um, and initially they didn't even, uh, diagnose the CPTSD because, you know, they need the symptoms and I was not even aware that I was experiencing the symptoms. Um, and so I started getting, uh, therapy and, uh, medication five years ago. And then it was about two years ago that I finally told my therapist, you know, hey, Adam wanted to, my partner wanted to uh, talk to me about me leaving the window open when I left our apartment. And one minute he's like, well, hey, we need to talk about this. And the next minute I realized that I have ran into my bathroom and locked the door and then sort of like come to my senses, like, what, what am I doing in here? Um, and then I told her another instance where we were, he was driving and I was in the passenger seat and someone cut him off on the highway and he's like, damn it. And like frustrated, like slapped his hand on the steering wheel. And I jerked away and reached for the car door. Like, keep in mind, we're moving. Um, and I, I had been so overcome by this feeling of, of like, get away that my body was reacting to to this incident in a way that made me think like, hey, maybe I should mention this to my therapist. Um, and that's how she actually diagnosed me. Uh, before that, I had no idea that I was experiencing those things and that I didn't have to keep experiencing those things. Um, and so going into therapy, because my Family didn't have a lot of the occult beliefs, but there were still like vestiges of them. And so there was a lot of pushback to me starting therapy and getting medication um, because of the cult, like, you know, mental illness isn't real. It's a demon or you're not trying hard enough. And so there was a lot of um, disapproval from them. And my therapist would just keep encouraging me and by saying that, you know, the family dynamic was so toxic and unhealthy that me doing something healthy was me rocking the boat. And so nobody wants the boat getting rocked, but if you don't stop, people will either stand up with you or leave the boat. And that is actually what ended up happening. Um, I no longer talked to my two older sisters um, because they just weren't down with it uh, and never stopped being those abusive people. Um, but my mom and my dad, you know, over two years time realized that I was actually happy and that, uh, maybe there was something to this whole therapy thing. And so, and also like part of like during my journey, I was very like honest with them about like what I was going through, like a very unexpected part of therapy was and sort of unearthing all of this stuff that I had repressed and turned inward was just, I was so angry, like so angry. And my parents were like, what the heck? And, <laughs> you know, they don't swear. Um, but I would just like be honest with them and, and tell them like, you know, when, when this happened, it really like, that really like messed me up. And, you know, I started having asthma when I was about three and because my dad didn't believe in medicine, he would never take me to get an inhaler. Um, and so I would suffer exercise induced asthma attacks all the time as a child. And I was never taken to a doctor to make it better. And, you know, I realized like I went and, um, 
about four years ago, went to the doctor for it. And they told me that, uh, they're like, when did this start? And I'm like, Oh yeah. When I was three, but you know, um, but they told me that untreated asthma attacks leave scar tissue in your lungs. And so I was really upset about it. Um, because I have 40% loss in the deep passageways in my lungs from, you know, the cult telling my dad that medicine doesn't know anything and just trust God in us. And so, you know, I mentioned it to my dad a couple of times and it was actually like six months ago, I said something about it and he's like, I'm really sorry. You know, he's like, I, I thought I was, I, I thought I was doing the right thing, but you know, it, it hurt you. And I'm really sorry for that. And that was just incredible to hear. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, you, when you started opening up uh, um, and really, you know, noticing, and it's a great thing you had, you know, that support system and your partner throughout all this. Yeah. But it, yeah. It, the power of open and being truthful and actually uh, facing you know, that trauma in the face uh, is, is unbelievable. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think part of that is my my coping mechanism to like get through my childhood was very much um, proactive. Um, I would do things, and also like I firmly believe that when we are abused, we either internalize or externalize the pain. Um, especially when it's at that point when you you know you can't process it; it's too much, and so. I internalized the pain. And so I, and I also like in my mind, every time something would happen, I would promise myself that I would never make someone else feel the way that I felt because I had no one protecting me. I had no one noticing what was happening. And so I promised myself that I would do the best that I could do to help my younger siblings to shield them from the worst of it or even, you know, a little bit of it, because it wasn't nearly as bad as when my two youngest siblings were born. Um, But I really sort of developed this very proactive uh, coping mechanism. And so uh, anytime I learned something new about, you know, my mental illness or, you know, my CPTSD, I'm very proactive in addressing it because I think it's just a healthy form of control because now that I know what it is, I can do things to make it better. Um, And for me, I have a niece and a nephew and my parents would sometimes babysit them and I would hear them say similar things that they would say to me um, when I was a kid. And it would trigger that protective, um, like, I don't think so. And so I would, you know, talk to my parents about it. And uh, I've just, uh, the way my character developed is I just can't, I I don't have the capacity to know that I can do something and then just not do it. That's, that's really a great way of looking at life. And I wonder how many people are, uh, because I didn't really know what's CPTSD was i heard of tsd but do you have any idea mm-hmm. like how many people are are out there that have no idea that you know they I have believe, yeah so i believe because you know once i figured it out i was like oh my god so i started reading um 
And I highly recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score. My therapist recommended it to me. Um, and it was the first time that he, you know, the book deals with PTSD, but a lot of the symptoms are extremely similar. Um, and so it was the first time that I had words to describe what I was going through because one of the uh, features of PTSD and CPTSD is that when the um, when it's triggered, the left side of your brain goes dark and the right side takes over. And so your logic and communication skills are like down. Um, and so it made it to where I almost couldn't verbalize what I was experiencing in these because it was purely physical and emotional. And like, I couldn't think and my way out of it, I couldn't rationalize and I could hardly describe what it felt like because it just, it felt like the most like being punched in the stomach and feeling sick and terrified and, and just a feeling of like, I have to get away. I have to make it stop. Um, and it took me, you know, like six months of therapy to even be able to verbalize that part of it. Cause it's so instinctive and it's, you know, your limbic system takes over. So it's deeper than your conscious mind. And it is just a, just a fun little train ride to hell, uh, when it happens. <laughs> and so when I started understanding it, um, and I looked it up, the data I saw, you know, which is the internet. So who knows? But it estimated that 30% of people with CPTSD don't know it, which is, yeah, yeah. And I absolutely get it because that was me, you know, I, you know, would dissociate. I was depressed. I had anxiety. uh, I had an eating disorder, which was just another way of coping. And I, you know, if someone asked me, like, how was your childhood? I would be like, it's great. You know, there's a couple bad times, like, but, you know, to cope with, um, to cope with all of that trauma, years of trauma, you have to bury it, you know, and years of that and having no before to compare it to you. I just didn't, I didn't know. And another like fun thing of developmental trauma, uh, is, you know, when trauma happens to you repeatedly, when your brain is developing, that is when you are learning how to see and react to the world. Um, and if you are traumatized a lot, during that period, you, your brain adapts and you learn that certain things mean things that uh, are not necessarily accurate outside of that abusive situation. Um, Like an example I like to use is um, when I was growing up, silence meant that something really bad was going to happen or I had really like done something wrong. And so I either had to make it better fast or I had to get out to get away from what was coming. And even as an adult, silence makes me deeply uncomfortable. And so for the first like two, three years of my relationship, um, you know, my partner would come home from work. And if he was slightly less talkative than normal, I would feel that he was mad at me. And I would feel like I have to fix this. I have to, I have to find out what I did. I have to fix it. I have to make it better. And that was the CPTSD because that was how my brain developed to interpret the world and how to react to it. And I was just completely unaware that there was any other way of interpreting silence. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, just thinking about that 30% number and what, what you're describing, uh, there, there's, 
I don't know if it's, it's gotta be millions of people out there that just think what's happening is normal. So that's why it's yeah. uh, so important for people like you to tell your story because if, if you don't hear, you might never know. You might be in this dark place and thinking it's completely normal. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, that was me. And that was part of why I decided, I decided to start a series about my CPTSD was realizing that without the knowledge that what I was experiencing was something that could be treated, you know, I had no idea that life could be better. I had no idea that I could feel happy for more than like 30 minutes. Um, I had no idea that I could feel like relaxed. You know, because one of the symptoms of CPTSD is hypervigilance. And so I was just always on the alert for danger, for signs that I was going to be abused, because that's how my brain adapted to survive. Um, and I just didn't know. I didn't know that there was a different, any other way to experience life than that. And when I started, you know, getting treatment, and for me, EMDR has been really, really helpful. Um, and I started seeing improvements and I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is incredible, you know? And one of the downsides of PTSD and CPTSD is that it typically is a lifelong condition, um, because your brain has changed, but that's something that I've come to peace with because, I've been, you know, treating it specifically for two years. And even though I have the same triggers, I don't have the same depth of a response to them. You know, so before my partner, like getting cut off in traffic and being frustrated, you know, I almost threw myself out of a moving car. Uh, and, you know, a few months ago, the same thing happened and I felt very uncomfortable, but I went, you know, internally in my head, I'm like, okay, Heidi, this is, just as CPTSD, like, it's okay. You know, you're safe, which is like a very important, like safe phrase for me. It helps me to start calming down and like coming back down to reality. And I'm like, you're safe. It's okay. Like this discomfort you feel is just the condition, like just breathe. It'll be fine. And so I was, you know, uncomfortable for 30 minutes and then it was fine, you know, and that's a huge improvement over almost exiting a moving car. Yeah, that's night and day difference. I, so, yeah. by the way, uh, it's interesting you bring up EMDR. Uh, just to let you know, I am fascinated by mm. EMDR and what it does. And for all the listeners that it's like, what, what is this EMDR? Uh, it's, I think it's like eye movement, desensitization, something like that. But it mm -hmm. essentially rewires the brain from what mm -hmm. almost like when you dream uh, you're rewiring your brain but it's a proven treatment process so i got to ask you this what how did you find emdr like what what led you to try out that treatment i got so lucky in that the very first therapist i was matched with was trauma informed 
And so I've been with the same therapist for five years. I'm still with her. And she was the one who diagnosed me with it. She's the one who recommended the book, who recommended EMDR. I just got so lucky. Um, I never would have thought to do that, but it really is effective. And it's, you know, you're, it's weird (laughs) when you're doing it. It's like, um, it's like mental telephone where you start with the trauma memory and then you let your brain go to the next thought and then the next thought. And then the therapist will stop you and ask like, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And then you just follow that down and it's crazy emotional um, because trauma is, it spider webs on itself and it builds. And so, you know, a lot of the trauma that I experienced had um, a, a similar like negative cognition attached to it. And so the, you know, I started my first EMDR session. I started with my first memory at three. I was like, you know what, let's start with the words. Let's just go for it. I don't care. Let's do it. Um, and so of course it was, oh God, I was an absolute mess. Um, but that, that one led to like the, you know, being framed by my sisters. And that led to like a breakup with who is, you know, now my current partner, but the love of my life. And all of these were linked by the negative cognition, which in my case was that I was the problem. And this is actually like a very um, common CPTSD uh, symptom. And one of the defining differences between CPTSD and PTSD is that CPTSD really affects your relationship to yourself and others. And it often obliterates um, self-esteem, it, obliv- it could destroy even like your sense of self. Um, and a lot of times you feel damaged, wrong, um, just like you're the problem, you know, like, and, and that for me was what it was, you know, going through EMDR in this session, like the negative, con- you know, cognition was that I was so fucked up that I didn't even know I was fucked up. You know, I just came out of the womb so incredibly wrong that everything that I I would ever do was wrong and everyone would realize I was wrong and nothing I could ever do was right. And I was so wrong. I never even realized it. And like, this was, I was never aware of that thought, but it was running through all of the traumatic events. And every time a trauma would build on the previous trauma, that would be almost internally like a confirmation. Like my trauma was confirming like, yeah, you are fucked up. And you know, this was all happening at a very subconscious level and EMDR unearthed it. And I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, not what has been going on, but just how, you know, starting with a memory and uh, for my therapist does it with like holding little buzzers that vibrate. Doing that was helping me process the trauma and trace the tangle down to find the things that were attached to it. It's incredible. It's, uh, and I think, uh, it's when you said EMDR, um, not enough people know, know about the treatment and yeah, like you said, you, you were lucky in, in finding such a great therapist through this journey, but it, it's incredible to, you know, hear you talk about it and the journey you've went through, it's, it really shows that people and listeners are out there and going through these things. It's okay to 
you know, talk, it's okay to open up. I think uh, yeah. it's case in point. Now, I have to ask you this because uh, <laughs> you did send over this. So from, from three years old uh, in a cult, you know, all this trauma, a breakup. Mm-hmm. What about wife swap? Like what happened <laughs> there because you couldn't write a book about you know everything you've been through and yeah so I'm glad you brought it up um so (laughs) okay so to get back to sort of like the timeline born into a cult um so that started very young then from about eight to 13 my sisters were framing me so I was being uh you know, physically, verbally, emotionally abused almost every night for all of those years. Um, the reason I know it was 13 when it stopped is my sister tried to frame me. My oldest sister tried to frame me for the last time. And this is, this is like the second time I was like, I am not saying I did this anymore. Like, this is it. I don't care. Like I'm done. And so I, you know, the first time I said, I didn't do it. I still got, um, punished for it. And then the second time my mom was like, Hmm, it really doesn't seem like she might've done it. And so that was the last time that that happened. And so that was when the worst of the abuse stopped. Um, and so right around probably about six months after that, my dad has always been a one man band musician at fairs and festivals. So like touring musician, but at fairs. Um, and so when I was 13, my, the industry was changing. My dad could no longer support us. And so my parents came to myself and my five siblings and were like, hey, here's the deal. Um, We want to start a family show because the market is like looking like that's what's working. You don't have to do it. But if you do it, we won't have to be impoverished. Um, And my two older sisters were like, no. And myself and my three younger siblings were like, okay, we'll do it. So, you know, and to me, like there, there wasn't like they gave me a choice, but like, what kind of a choice is that? Like I could help my family not like actually survive. Like I'm not going to say no. And so we started this family show, um, that we did at fairs and festivals and actually built it up to like a six figure business. And so it was like, it was fun. It was like music and comedy family show, like little like comedy skits, sort of like a family friendly, like SNL, but with also like parodies in there too. Um, like we had puppets and stuff. It was really fun. Um, and so wife swap contacted my family and we're like, Hey, what you're doing is great. Um, we want to feature you on our show. And so my parents were like, well, let's pray about it. And like, just I'm, I'm an atheist now. So (laughs) my cynicism will come out. Oh, you know, my childhood sort of like primed me to become an atheist later. Cause I'm like, well, God didn't do shit. Then like, I don't know (laughs) what would make him kick in now. Um, so my parents like prayed about it and they're like, Oh yeah, we should do it. And like, they were also, uh, like sort of being manipulated by this prophetess lady who was just conning my parents out of a lot of money. Um, and she was like, Oh yeah, definitely God, you should do it. And so, uh, Swap spent about four months, uh, really, um, uh, buttering up my family and love bombing us 
And so they would say things as like, wow, like what you're doing as a family is so inspirational. Like, you know, the U.S. really needs to see what a family working together can look like. And you have such a great message to share with America. And like just hitting all of the um, things that my family wanted, Um, you know, have a good story, inspire people to like figure things out and work together and all that stuff. Um, so like going into it, you know, four months of love bombing, it's very effective in getting you to trust, uh, Uh. these people. And, um, when it came time to sign the contracts, we only had them for like 30 minutes. And my dad was still trying to like flip through them because they had brought the contracts to the fair we were at, but then they like filled up the day with other things. And they were like, Oh, we need to leave in 30 minutes, but like here, sign these contracts. It was very just like out the gate. It was shifty. Um, But at this point they had already developed that trust thing with us where we fully believed them. Um. And so my dad, like he did thumb through a couple pages and he's like, what's this here that says you can cut and splice audio to like make us look bad. And they're like, Oh no, no, that's just technical because like sometimes the sound bite will have like a car passing. And so we just have to be able to move audio around sometimes, but we would never make you guys look bad. No way. That was in the contract. Yes. I actually have the contract still. Um, my mom saved them. So I have them. And I actually read through them a few months ago and it just gets worse. It gets worse. Um, but they didn't give us that like everything that they were going to do with us was in there, but they didn't give us the time to look through them. And then when we were filming, they actually took the contracts away too. So we couldn't reference them. Um, so part of when they were filming wife's lab, I was 21, I think this is like 2008. So I was living at home, working, supporting my family. And all the adults had to take a 700-question psych eval that really just, you know, picked you apart. Well, uh, some of the questions were like, what are your triggers? But, like, done better than that. So it's like, what's something that makes you really sad? What's something that makes you really angry? Um, And then the first conversation with the other mother you know, I had told the psychologist, like, you know, something that makes really me really sad is feeling alone because I had sacrificed my tears and having a social life to support my family. And so the first conversation with the other mother, she looks me dead in the eyes and says, you're alone. You don't have friends. Nobody cares about you. I don't care about you. And, you know, looking back now, me running out of the room and locking myself in a stage is perfectly tracked with my CPTSD. Um, But now from like knowing my condition, I see how absolutely like despicable what they did was because they used the psych evals to find our trauma and then they purposefully triggered our traumas to force us into fight or flight for entertainment. And there is a thing called re-traumatization, which is where you are hurt. You are traumatized again in the same way. And they did that. And they reenacted those things. And like me telling my, me telling that psychologist, you know, that fear of mine, that was not just like a fear. That was a fear caused by trauma. And, you know, that's the fear that would creep in my mind when something traumatic would happen, that I am alone. Nobody loves me because I've just been abused. And then on camera, they say that. 
they they take my like secret fear, my deep negative cognition from years of abuse, and they say it to me like a fact. Oh and goodness. it's for yeah, yes. And it was <sighs> ten days of this. So and, so so yeah. Just for the listeners that don't know what wife swap is, can you kind of go into what? Yes. Yeah. So, sorry, I keep cutting you off too. No, <laughs> no, no. Keep on going. I'm on the edge of my seat right now. <laughs> uh, so, Wife Swap was a show that was on ABC. Um, it was a major network show where two families from like opposing beliefs would, the moms would swap places. And so, mom A would go to family B and mom B would go to family A. And they would, for the first week, make the new mom live by the family rules. And then the second week, the new mom would make the family live by, like, her family's rules. And the premise of the show was put as a way to help each other grow and learn and all sorts of, like, positive spins. Um, But the reality was that... Yes. (laughs) But the reality was that they... Uh, found vulnerable families, loved bombed them, set them up to uh, be embarrassed and ridiculed, and then triggered them repeatedly into fight or flight while cameras were rolling. For two weeks. Yeah. Well, actually 10 days, but they said it was two weeks. So, yeah. And so, uh, so, so I realized like day one of filming like, oh, no. Oh no, this isn't what I, this, uh, uh-uh, this is bad. Um, but one of the clauses in the contract was that if you held up filming, they would sue you for a million dollars. No. And you know, this is like 2008. So it's, you know, it's more money than two. And yeah. so I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. My dad's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And they're like, well, you got a million bucks. Cause if not, you have to do it. So we were trapped. Um, in a situation where the producers knew our deepest triggers and traumas and would trigger them whenever they felt like it. And so for my experience, um, the producer and director played good cop, bad cop with my dad, but it was actually very effective with my dad. So I was like, oh, damn it. So then I was trying to outwit the director and producer to manipulate them where they didn't know that I knew what they were doing because if they knew they could threaten me with the lawsuit. But if they thought that I was playing by their rules and had simply outwitted them, I could get away with it. And so again, I'm in this psychological torment trying to protect my family from ridicule, like ridicule while also (laughs) being like having my trauma forced on me while cameras are rolling, knowing that America is going to be laughing at my pain. And it was one of the worst experiences of my entire life. Like, absolutely. It, it was terrifying. It was mortifying. Like I was so stressed out. I like stopped being able to eat. Um, which then of course they're like buying me all my favorite foods to try and like trick me into it. Um, they actually, at one point it didn't end up on the show, but they, uh, they were able to trigger the other mother, but she had fight and 
they gave her a pair of scissors and she wound up like coming, running into the room with them to dismember a puppet that our audiences like across the U S thought were real because most of our audiences are like four year olds, you know, five year olds, six year olds. So she's the producers told her to like cut a finger off the puppet for every rule that was broken. And so in my mind, I'm like, Holy shit. Like, a five-year-old is going to think that we're letting their monkey get dismembered. Like that is really fucked up. And so my dad went to grab the puppet out of her way and she swung the scissors at him and he grabbed her wrist to stop her from hitting him with the scissors. And then the producer and director ran in screaming, I'm in the room watching this happen, just being re-traumatized. Like oh. just, yeah. Um, and they didn't, and then they didn't I think, show that. No, no, they did not. And they didn't show what she said to me at either. Um, they had already decided going into it that like my family was, there's always like one family that was worse than the other. And so they decided that my family was worse than hers. And so they just removed anything that she did that would have made her and her family look worse. Just removed it. And actually, like, cut and splice audio to make my family look worse. And it was um, in the contract. Yep, it was in the contract that we didn't have enough time to read. And uh, so it was, and then, of course, like, a year later, the show premieres. And then it just, that was awful. Like, I still remember the actress who played Topanga in Boy Meets World. She was on, like, a talk show. And she, their talk show had my episode uh, on and they're like, oh yeah, Heidi, you know, who's never had a boyfriend, which side note wasn't true, um, but who's never had a boyfriend, but she lets Carnies like feel her up behind the tilt-a-whirl and like that's on national fucking television. That's... And uh, yeah. And like after the show premiered, I dropped my last name from all my social media and I only added it back in this year. But I How? didn't want to be associated with it. Did, did you get a lot of people that like when the show premiered, did you have people, friends, were people recognizing that it was you? Like you, you basically had to relive that whole nightmare. Yeah. Um, yes, I had people recognizing it was me. Um, they, it actually destroyed my family's business as well. So that was the beginning of the end of our family business that we built into this really successful thing. Um, because they ridiculed it and they painted my family in a way that fairs didn't want to hire us. And so it really like destroyed a lot of what we had built together as well as traumatized all of us. Um, not so much my two youngest siblings because they weren't, you know, legally adults. So they were spared a lot of it. Um, they were spared a lot of like the direct abuse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just absolutely mortifying and humiliating. And like, it's on Hulu right now, which is just so much fun. Uh, and you know, they like, had me they cut and sliced audio to say that I'd never had a boyfriend I wasn't allowed to like pick my own clothing they just portrayed me as this like completely like isolated inept girl like woman who is still a girl and is just very embarrassing um 
but no so one, is- yeah, and no one knew what it was actually like to go through. And at the time, like I tried telling people, but nobody wanted to hear it because at the time they're like, no, this is a great show. That no, no, no. Like nobody wanted to know what actually went down. Um, because it didn't match their idea of what it was supposed to be like. And so I had never talked about it. Um, and then I brought it up one time in therapy. Uh, this was last year. And my therapist was, was just like her jaw was on the floor. And she said that what the psychologist did telling them was so wrong that they shouldn't be allowed to practice. And yeah. it's the first time I'd ever heard that what I went through was wrong. Like what they did to us was wrong. And so I just randomly filmed the TikTok about it. <laughs> and then it went viral. Um, and that sort of like, that was the first kickoff for me talking about trauma because, you know, it was this highly traumatic experience that was just insidious and, and terrible that the producers and directors knew what they were doing and did it anyways. You know, and by the end of film, yeah, and by the end of filming, like the film crew wouldn't even like look us in the eye anymore. They were so ashamed of what they'd done. It was. That's yeah. So the if there's any listeners that are documentary creators, I think there's a documentary (laughs) out there. The old stories of reality TV, like it's yeah. It's crazy, and the I, I just don't know how it's legal. And let alone, you know, he you talk about this re-traumatization. Mm-hmm. That's you went from a cult with sisters and you getting basically taken the blame to mm-hmm. starting to build as a family to going through this complete nightmare for the ent- mm-hmm. entertainment of the of America. It yeah. is. So, okay. So you go through all this, like mm-hmm. bring us through, you know, the show's over the show premiere. What, when does that journey start? You, you say your partner is kind of the person who nudged you in the direction, but tell us, you know, we go from this whole experience what was next yeah. for Heidi? So after Wife Swap, um, the family business went for about three to four more years, but just like losing business the whole time. You know, like yeah. that was our peak was right before we filmed. Um, and so I, a lot of my life I use, I like to joke and say that I self-medicated with Dick and the Bible, but I would alternate between them. So, so I would be like, well, I feel absolutely terrible and I'm sad all the time. Like maybe if I'm a better Christian, it'll work. It wouldn't work. So I'd be like, okay, okay. And like better Christian involved, like not fooling around, not doing anything that like purity culture would disprove of. So like kissing and holding hands, only dating, like the whole nine yards, praying every day, devotions, yada, yada. And that wouldn't work because it will not work on trauma. Uh, so then I realized, okay, so the Bible didn't work. So I'm going to like just throw myself into dating, uh, fool around and like that'll work. Well, it didn't work. Uh, so I would just alternate between the two. Um, and so after about four years after wife swap, I was like back to the, like, I'll medicate with dick phase. 
And so I met this guy on an online dating app. And he was British. He lived in Branson. And so we started dating. And then he, you know, we started talking about getting married. And so he proposed to me, like, that after, like, eight months of dating in London or in Paris, actually, at the Eiffel Tower. So then I was engaged and I had moved out. So the show was like officially ended at that point. Um, they enrolled my youngest sister in high school so that she could like experience a normal life. You know, like the show, our show had declined to the point that they're like, well, okay, that's, that's kind of it. Um, and so I was engaged to this guy. Then I realized like, I still wasn't happy. I was miserable. And also I like, I knew I didn't want to be married. And I also knew I definitely didn't want to marry him. So I ended things with him and wound up essentially homeless because I was living in a place that his parents had bought for us. I was driving a car that he had bought. Um, and I moved back in with my, um, I moved in with my brother. I was just like sleeping on his floor and I'm just trying to figure life out, you know, because I had been operating under that subconscious cold belief of like, you'll be fulfilled as a woman. If you get married and have kids, like that's all there is for you. That is all you need. And I, you know, got up to the brink of being married and realized like, uh, uh-uh, this isn't doing it for me. And so that's when I realized, well, if I did social media on MySpace by accident, I can do it again on purpose. And so I was homeless. I like stumbled into a job in um, brand ambassadors at events. And so I started doing that and just like studying social media and finding my niche in social media. And so then I realized one day I'm like, well, I'm traveling for work. Um, Why don't I just move back to my parents' house? So I asked my parents, they said, yes. Um, So I think I was like 24 when I, 23 or 24 when I moved back home. Um, And I, after I ended my engagement, I essentially had to start my life over from scratch. So I moved in with my parents, um, traveled for work. And the whole time I was building my social media and creating content um, and just also very depressed and suffering from CPTSD. And, you know, I had insomnia. And so my life is at the point where because of my coping mechanism of being productive, I could make myself work when I was dissociated, when I was numb, but I could not make myself do anything for fun because I couldn't feel fun. So there was no point in, you know, turning on the TV when I felt nothing. And so I would just work constantly um, on social media, on content, on learning photography. And then if I wasn't working, I was just laying in bed. Like there was no enjoyment. There was no fulfillment. Uh, It was just an absolutely like numb, just drive to work. Um, And my parents were like, hmm, she seems like a workaholic. But that's as far as it went Um, in terms of like recognition. And so I worked my way up from being like the brand ambassador in uh, like motorcycle events for progressive insurance to being like the assistant tour manager. So I was managing the girls and I would work 15 events out of the year, um, make a living. And then in my off time, I would create content and just build my social media as much as I could. 
And during this time, the first Suicide Squad movie came out. And so DC Comics did like, hey, we'll do a photo contest. And so I entered it along with my brother and we won. Um, and they flew us out to D- uh, San Diego Comic-Con. And while we were there, DC was like, hey, you guys are cool. Do you want to like take over our Instagram for the day? Which of course, yes. So that really like kicked off my social media. Um, and for me, you know, because I traveled so much, as a, you know, I was homeschooled and also traveled like six to nine months out of the year, ever since I was a very small child. So there's never really been a place that felt like home aside from the internet. And so for me, the internet is where I feel the most at home, um, making content, like making funny videos or like putting outfits together. Just it, for me, that is where I feel the most, uh, comfortable. Um, and so that kind of, uh, was going along really well. And then um, Warner Brothers asked me to go on an influencer trip with them to Brazil in 2019. So I went there, got to meet Margot Robbie and Gal Gadot, and it was really, really awesome. And then COVID happened. <laughs> and so my job at motorcycle events was non-existent. And so... Um, that was lots of fun. And I wound up starting my TikTok. And then I got a job as a content creator at a local marketing agency. And so that's sort of like brings me to today. But before I'll back space a little bit. Um, I reconnected with my partner five years ago. So this is like, right. Uh, probably like, I don't know. I'm bad with dates, but I was still touring. I was still living at home and touring with uh, the motorcycle industry. And I, um, we dated off and on as teenagers. And, you know, at this point, I'm just like really not doing well mentally. And I had a dream about it one night and I was so um, jaded and just suffering. I was like, well, I wonder if he's still alive. And so I looked at my phone and I just had his first name and I thought like, this is probably not him, but I'm going to text it. And it was him somehow like 13 years later. And, uh, we started talking and, you know, two texts and he's like, Oh my God, she's undiagnosed. Um, because like in those 13 years, he had been diagnosed with, um, bipolar and had gone through treatment. And so he was, talking to me with fresh eyes and was like, Oh, wow. And so, you know, I'm still just in a really bad place. And he knew completely what he was getting into, um, by, uh, talking to me and by, uh, helping me. And he decided that I was worth it. And he worked so hard, so hard that first like year and a half, two years. I mean, I would be triggered. My CPTSD would be triggered daily by the smallest things. Um, and he just, he would just sit there with me and, and hold me and talk to me and, and wouldn't take it personally. You know, when (laughs) one time, one time I was convinced he was cheating on me and he wasn't, um, it was just, another fun thing about being traumatized and having difficulty trusting people. Um, and he never made me feel bad about it. He was actually the first person to ever, 
present the idea to me that my CPTSD and the resulting depression and anxiety wasn't me. It was separate from me. So like I wasn't overreacting, but the CPTSD was going a little bit crazy. And it really like this idea that I was not the conditions that I was experiencing really helped me to start feeling a sense of identity and a little bit of self-esteem because, you know, I had my whole life thought like I'm fucking crazy. Like, I don't know why I do these things. Like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I this? Why can't I that? And then it just, you know, it's a spiral down. And he was the first person to be like, it's not your fault. Like, you didn't choose these things. Uh, You didn't choose to be traumatized. You're not choosing to react this way. It's just the trauma. It's just the CPTSD. Um, And at first, like, we didn't know about CPTSD. So it was just the depression and anxiety. Um, But he, I firmly believe that if it wasn't for him, like, I might not even be here because I was uh, very suicidal with a plan right when we started talking again. Um, I would just, you know, the nature of a trauma and mental illness is that it, it gets worse if you don't treat it. It does not go away. And I had been untreated for, you know, two decades. And so it had just progressed to the point that I just didn't want to live anymore. And then he came back into my life and, you know, he saw the value in me that I couldn't see. And he put in all of the work and effort and, you know, talking to me late at night when I'm like crying and, you know, I would just have these depressive like episodes where I would just couldn't stop crying or I I would just feel when I would feel suicidal, he would like take me for a drive and, and talk to me. And like, if it wasn't for him, I don't think that I would still be here and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to talk about these things. I would never have even known what was wrong with me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I credit him <laughs> it's, uh, fully for doing that. So I know you said you're an atheist, but you, that dream, what a sign. Yeah. And you took that sign, whatever <laughs> that thing is, whether, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever you want to, is what you want to believe. Um, but it's just so crazy how you had that and you acted on it. And, and he was there to listen. Somebody who's gone through, maybe not the same exact thing, but something and was able to be that support system. And I think it just goes to, everybody needs to, you know, really be there. And I think that's what, when uh, my good friend sent over your video, um, and said, Hey, uh, you need to reach out to her. I was so excited because what I didn't even know the extent of everything and through and your entire journey, but I knew that just based off of some of your videos, the story that you've started to tell needs mm-hmm. to be told because I mean, I was looking at one of the posts you did and there was so many comments that of people going through the same thing. And you didn't just sit there and not comment back. You engaged with that community. And so I think uh, 
you need to keep that series going. And, uh, you know, every time you speak about it, you're going to be helping that 30%, just like your friend uh, did during your journey. Yeah. And for me too, even beyond, you know, the 30% that are undiagnosed, the, because I think it's about 7% of the population of the U S has CPTSD. There's a lot more people who are completely unaware of the condition and the symptoms and how to talk to people with that and how to support people with the condition, you know, and how to not shame them because that's a huge part of it is just the shame of, of suffering and feeling like it's your fault for not being able to be normal. And, you know, my younger sister had tried to help me a few times, but like before my partner came back into my life, but she used words and it wasn't her fault at all, but she didn't know that saying things like you have to get a therapist, all the CPTSD and my trauma heard was like, you're not doing right because you should be doing this. And so her best intentions effort to help me completely backfired because it wasn't what I could hear through what I was suffering from. And so, whereas my partner took the approach and he told me, uh, when we started dating again, he told me, um, that he wanted to know all of me. And he said, even the parts of you that you're afraid no one will understand or that you think are shameful or ugly, I love you. And I want to know every single part of you. And it was just pure acceptance. And it wasn't with a, you should do this, or you're not doing this. It was just, I want to know you. And even when he asked me if I wanted to go get diagnosed, he asked me, you know, he said, what do you think if I went with you to get diagnosed? Do you think that that would be okay? And it was from this place of, of um, asking my consent and, and it came across as helpful and understanding instead of, well, you're not doing enough or you should do this or you shouldn't do that. And, you know, people with this condition, like all we hear about is what we're not doing enough of and what we should do. Yeah. You're overreacting. You shouldn't do that. What's wrong with you? Why can't you be happy? Like, why are you acting like that? Like it's all shoulds and can'ts. And, and so we just feel so ashamed of our inability to even understand what's happening to us. Because again, it, it starts so young most of the time. And that's another reason I wanted to do this series was just to create more people who are trauma informed because Adam being trauma informed, my partner being trauma informed, he was able to help me in a way that people who weren't couldn't. And another like really great thing, um, my job actually where I work. So I started talking about my trauma and um, my CPTSD and one of the owners who is my manager, uh, he still is my manager. We were just talking one time and I told him about my safe phrase that like starts calming me down and bringing me back, um, which is you're not in trouble. And so um, I didn't know that he took note of that, but we had to have a meeting and 
you know, I had made a little mistake. And so I just went into that meeting, just, I'm already triggered at this point. Cause you know, of course, like I'm in trouble. And so we sit down and he looks at me and he goes, you're not in trouble. Like, it's okay. And I was like, Oh my God. And like that trigger that was building started quieting back down. And he told the other owner. And so she like, just think he told, he let her know because he knew from talking to me that this was, you know, I suffered from CPTSD, so it made working a job incredibly difficult. And so he wanted to help me not have as many triggers. So he remembered that phrase. And then he told the other owner. And so when she needed to talk to me, she was like, hey, can we just chat real fast? Like, nothing's wrong. Everything's okay. And I realized that he had done that. And like, the experience of working in a company that where the leaders are making the effort to be trauma-informed and to take note of my condition and make it easier for me is just absolutely incredible. And I, I just makes me think of like how many other people could watch this series and learn to be, you know, trauma-informed and listen to friends or family or coworkers or employees and make their lives a little bit easier. Uh, and help, you know, manage life with this condition that makes managing life really hard sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you uh, gave a per- perfect description of why, you know, we created this and why we have people like you on. I think what it's, it's powerful. And, you know, all the listeners that are business owners, um, hearing it from, that employee's perspective, the importance of not only the condition, but just your entire team's mental health, mental well-being, it really is important. And, and I think what's happening today with you're having a lot more people starting to speak up about mental health um, from mm-hmm. athletes to celebrities. Uh, uh, you, you brought up uh, to me uh, before we started recording. Uh, you're, you're now on this journey to really destigmatize mental health, and I think it's powerful to hear. For the longest time, you thought you were the problem, and it wasn't until you started mm-hmm. really understanding what up uh, for you know for people that are out there that are sitting there and they're thinking, you know, that's kind of how I think, or, you know, I, I've always thought I'm the problem. Do you have any advice for, you know, how can somebody who is either already started on that or maybe doesn't even realize, like, what's your advice for the people that are feeling something that don't even know that they're feeling something? So my advice would be, um, first of all, like you're not the problem. There is absolutely nothing wrong or broken with them. And if, you know, you're feeling, you know, something that I have said has resonated with you, I highly recommend um, reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which has the just the most amazing um, description of trauma and PTSD 
and examples of it, which that book really helped me to understand my own reactions and my own condition. And I am a huge, huge um, believer in therapy. I know that not everybody has access to it. And so doing a little bit of uh, Googling, but keeping to um, anytime I use Dr. Google, I stick to just the authorized people. So like psychologists and psychiatrists, (laughs) Uh, don't read a Facebook post about it uh, necessarily. but just to look into it a little more and uh, the body keeps the score is great. Uh, Brene Brown is a Ted talker. She's also really great in uh, talking about some of these things. And I think internally thinking about it. And if you have someone that you trust and you want to talk to about it um, just to sort of like verbalize, it really helps. And Again, if if you think that you've experienced some trauma or or if, you know, you think you might have CPTSD, um, there's a lot of really good uh, articles online about it, but you do have to sort of sift through them because it's not recognized as a separate diagnosis in the DSM-5, even though it is, it is more like a variant of of PTSD. Um, and so the body keeps the score is a great one. And then there's, um, I believe it's a website. I want to say it's like something recovery. I I have a terrible memory, which is funny enough, like another symptom of CPTSD. (laughs) I actually told uh, my partner the other day, I was like, yeah, you know, like that memory problem I have trauma. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend the body keeps the score is a really great starting place for learning more about trauma and PTSD and and how it affects us. And then do you have any advice for the people that might not be going through something, but might, you know, like your sister, your sister was well-intentioned. What's, what's your advice for the people who might have friends, family that's going through uh, trauma or have experienced trauma um, and it's having an effect on them? My advice would be if there's someone in your life that you notice is struggling or, or they feel, you know, they seem to be down a lot or overreacting, approach them from a place of just support and acceptance and understanding. And I wouldn't even come to them and be like, are you depressed? Because a lot of times, you know, speaking from personal experience, I was so ashamed of what I was going through that I was constantly repressing it. And if anybody had asked me, I would have said no. Um, because it's, it's such a, it's like a secret. You feel like it's like a scarlet letter um, that marks you as, as messed up and broken. And what helped me the most was my partner just talking to me and then asking me like, you know, how can I support you? How can I be there for you? So you could even be, Say like, I want to be the best friend, partner, parent, you know, how can I be that for you? How can I be there for you more? Like, or I noticed you had a bad day. What can I do to help? You're posing it as questions um, and like an accepting question of just wanting to support does way more in my opinion than you need to get therapy or you or have you tried Zoloft, you know, because a lot of times those feel like accusations. 
And so just asking what you can do to help or what you can do to be a better friend. And, or if you know that they like to watch movies or let's say like horror movies and, and be like, Hey, do you want to have a horror movie night? And just be a, a safe place for them, which, you know, my partner was the first safe place I'd ever experienced. And a really important part that I actually haven't touched on yet was my partner was the first time I had experienced a safe place or unconditional love. And it was the unconditional love and the safety that gave me the strength to address these things that I felt were shameful secrets. And so if there's someone in your life that you want to help or be there for, or you feel is struggling, just come from it at an angle of being their safe place and their support. And you don't even need to talk about the exact issue. You know, all my partner said was, I want to get to know you and the parts of you that you're, you think no one would love. He didn't say like, I think you're depressed. And it was that acceptance and that support and that safety that got me to the point where I was ready to open up about and even open up to myself about what I was experiencing. It's powerful, powerful advice. So uh, I know because I've, you know, been on your Instagram, been on your TikTok and uh, people are commenting, you're giving advice on there. So where can any listeners find you? Uh, where, where are you at on social media? What's, uh, and we'll put all the links to the book and your social, but where, where can people find you? Oh, uh, thank you. I am on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook as Heidi Matrix, but it's M-A-E um, in Matrix. That's my middle name. Uh, really hokey, but I love it. Um, and you can find me under that username on those places. And I actually will be editing the second episode of my CPTSD series. And I'm starting with just the very beginning of what is it? And then I'll be going through symptoms, what it, you know, what happens to your brain during a PTSD episode, because I think it's very important for people with this condition and people in their lives to understand, like, you can't add logic uh, CPTSD or PTSD episode is not going to happen. So if you want to know more about CPTSD and hear some secondhand therapy and my therapist, actually her and I were talking about it. She gave me some things to recommend, uh, for my series. So I'll be passing some straight secondhand therapy for, you know, anyone who doesn't have access to it and just talking more about the condition and what it's like to live with it and things that you can do to help with it or help others that, you know, that might be struggling with it. Well, we'll definitely put the links and uh, I know I'll be watching, but Heidi, it's been, it's been an unbelievable time uh, talking to you and uh, you can't get enough credit for the journey and, and through all the hardships where you are today. So I just thank you for, for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, something I could talk about a lot because uh, it's, unfortunately a very large part of my life yeah well i think talking is uh there's people out there that are either going or uh, need to go through it so talking is the best thing to do about it so i appreciate it i appreciate all the listeners and uh, see you next week thank you so much hey listeners thanks for tuning in to another episode of everyone hates healthcare if you have a healthcare story we want to hear it 
All you got to do is shoot me an email with my healthcare story in the subject line to my story at healthkarma.org. Also, check out all the episode notes, resources, and more ways you can take control of your healthcare. All you got to do is just visit healthkarma.org slash podcast. While you're on there, help us out. Don't forget to drop us a rating, a review, and share it with all your family and friends. Can't wait to see you next week.